The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. And as always, I am joined by China Global South's managing editor in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus van Staden. Good afternoon. Kobus, we have been off for a little bit from our China Global South show for a few weeks, so we're excited to be back. And boy, did we pick a good week to come back because out here in Asia, there has been a flurry of diplomacy. In fact, I can't remember a week like the one we had last week. So it started in Phnom Penh, Cambodia with the ASEAN Summit. ASEAN is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And then folks bounced to the beautiful Indonesian island of Bali for the G20 Summit. And that was a very big deal, which I'll explain. And then later... In the week, the whole week ended in Bangkok, Thailand with the APEC Leaders Summit. So three major international summits all squeezed together in one week. By the way, coming on the heels of the COP27 summit in Cairo. So we have been in summit season right now. Now, there was something very important about the last two, that is the G20 summit and the APEC summit. And that was notable because it was the first time that Chinese President Xi Jinping stepped back out onto the international stage where he had to interact with Western leaders. Of course, the first time that he emerged on the international stage after three years of diplomatic hibernation was in Uzbekistan for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Samarkand. That was a more self-selecting group of leaders, really with the exception of India. For the most part, those were largely friendly states that were there. This time, though, in both Bangkok and Bali, he had to interact with a number of Western leaders. And boy, did he. So the highlight of the G20 summit was a three-hour meeting with Joe Biden that in many ways a lot of people in the U.S. interpreted as a dialing down of tensions between the United States and China. Interesting, though, Kobus, that if you look at some of the China analysis from some of the more sophisticated China watchers out there, they're very astute in pointing out that nothing in the Chinese language press indicated a dialing down of the tensions between the United States and China. So there's an optics and a substance that we need to pay attention to. Also, a very important development happened again in Bali was there was a handshake, just a handshake and a very brief conversation conversation between Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Xi Jinping. So that was also very interesting. And then finally, Kobus, at the APEC summit, very interesting. This was one that Joe Biden decided that he wasn't going to go to. And in many ways, he ceded the stage to Xi Jinping. So Kobus, you covered a lot of what happened this week. What were your big takeaways from the week of summits that we had last week? You know, from an African perspective, particularly the G20 summit was interesting because there was moves from South Africa to have the African Union included as a full G20 member. It was also kind of just interesting to see the succession of meetings between Xi Jinping and all of these world leaders, including, of course, this kind of viral moment, viral interaction between Canadian President Justin Trudeau and Xi Jinping, where she seemed to be kind of scolding Trudeau for what seemed to be kind of like the leaking of the conversation 
conversation they had the day before. It's all very, very interesting. I was just going to flutter of China watches around that incident. But beyond everything, it was just very interesting to see the re-emergence, not only of Xi, but also the re-emergence of outward-looking Chinese diplomacy, you know, kind of really kind of coming back to full force, you know, after being closed down, you know, during COVID for so long. Obviously, Foreign Minister Wang Yi had been doing very proactive kind of diplomacy right through that period. He was traveling a lot. And he was also at the G20 doing his own kind of like set of meetings, including with the Foreign Minister of Mexico. It was interesting to see that then kind of being backed up at a higher level by Xi Jinping himself. And you really get the sense that if the COVID era was a moment where the stage curtains was closed, you know, kind of when China was kind of moving the sets behind the curtain, now the curtain is back open. And there's this kind of like re-emergence on the stage. And it's very interesting to see it in action. Well, since all of this activity happened here in Southeast Asia, we thought today would be a great opportunity for us to focus on China-Southeast Asian relations. And since in many ways, and we've said this a number of times on the show, Southeast Asia is the front line now in this burgeoning global conflict and confrontation between the United States and China and the Quad and China and so forth. So let's now get a perspective on that from Southeast Asia. So Colin Coe is a research fellow at the Institute of Defense and Strategic Studies, which is part of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University over in Singapore, just down the road from me here in Vietnam. He's also one of the foremost specialists of naval affairs in the Indo-Pacific, with a particular focus on issues here in Southeast Asia. Colin, welcome to the show. It's really exciting for us to have you on the program. Thank you, Eric and Hubas, for having me here. It's a great honor to join you to discuss such uh, interesting issues during such interesting weeks uh, before. Well, I don't even know where to start, given that there was so much that happened over the past week or two. What was your big takeaway, specifically focusing on China, of the various summits that took place last week in Cambodia, Indonesia, and Thailand? Just now, uh, the discussion has, uh, you know, sort of uh, fleshed out some of the key observations regarding China. And of course, there are a few important contexts to think about. One is that as of now, China being a very consequential economic power, it is uh, now ranked second in the world. And, you know, some projections put it to be, you know, the number one economy in a few years time. But be that as it may, uh, given the existing projections, China will be a consequential economic power. So therefore, its current COVID-19 policies, in particular, you know, the dynamic zero policy uh, has weighed down quite heavily on its economy. And I think it is rather unprecedented compared to the pre-pandemic era that the current uh, Chinese economic development has somewhat reached a roadblock. It is slowed down and you know, there are some indicators that didn't really bode well for the future. So it is in that backdrop uh, that you know, Xi Jinping uh, will find it necessary to give China a much uh, sort of external uh, outlook and to sort of reach out to the wider region and beyond. So that is the first context of the takeaway. I think the second context, of course, which I believe everybody is well aware, is that he is pretty much boiled in terms of his you know, political power after the very recent 20th Party Congress. And having secured his 
third term in power and I think the most of us will uh, very likely project him to secure power in the next term and then the, the next following term as well that you know given his you know more solid position uh, right now I think it makes it imperative for him to step out and of course in Chinese uh, they generally call that zhou chu xu you know so they sort of, sort of step out the world and you know try to reach out as many as possible and of course the third context in that connection is given the economic problems back home and given you know the the broader issues that China has encountered with various external parties like in the case of Europe you know things were not uh, exactly going on well and you know with the US so therefore it makes it imperative for Xi Jinping to step out and to reach out to you know friends as well and then in that connection something that i believe all of us will never you know forget to mention is the russia ukraine war which obviously has done quite a bit of uh, damage to china because uh, as, as of now ever since the war began in february china has very often been seen as on the side of russia and in a way you know it would not be wrong to say that china wants also to carve out more space for itself internationally. It doesn't want to be unnecessarily lumped together with just Russia. It wants to be seen to be playing good with other parties. And I believe that is how uh, very likely Xi Jinping uh, and the Communist Party in general will feel that it is uh, you know, much better for the fulfillment of long-term Chinese national interest in their life. So in that context, I think it's important to note that it is a good thing that Xi Jinping has somewhat conducted himself with poise. I did watch that short video of his interaction with Trudeau. I had a little bit more nuance in my observation of that video. I watched that a number of times. He wasn't exactly scolding Trudeau. I mean, it might have appeared to be given that Trudeau is a much younger man and see himself is his older. Uh, it does appear to me that obviously he sounded frustrated, somewhat indignant about what's going on, and he somewhat was, you know, lamenting, half lamenting and half grousing of sort. And I don't think, you know, he has reached a point where he was practically scolding Trudeau. <laughs> I, uh, probably a covert you could. Well, that's not the way that people in the West interpreted it. They called it a dressing down and they said it was a very embarrassing moment for a Western leader. Yeah, I mean, that is, of course, uh, taking into account the cultural differences, that, that is the case. Whereas in, I think, in the Chinese culture and being a, an ethnic Chinese, probably one way to explain that is maybe to look at it in terms of, you know, how an older man used to, you know, sort of speak to a younger man and then, you know, express his displeasure to the younger man in a way that some will call fatherly. But and some will call in a very teacher-like manner. But in a way, it doesn't appear to be you know scolding him. But I mean, I I take your point that you know in the Western world it is taken somewhat differently. It is seen as uh, insulting, and the fact that you know he sort of turned away when Trudeau was speaking, and then it does seem to display a sense of disdain towards Trudeau. Uh, that that itself is uh, unmistakable. But in a way, it appears that he doesn't have to go wolf warrior because there are some commentaries out there after having watched the video commenting that uh, C has uh, practically gone wolf warrior. It's not exactly the type of wolf warrior that we think about. Yeah, that's an exaggeration. I mean, Yeah, that's an exaggeration because, you know, C himself, 
knowing that he is where the limelight, everybody is watching him, he is practically fronting China for the diplomacy, he has to maintain his post as a statesman so he could afford to maintain that. And then the wolf warrior, work, he could leave it to his underlings to do it anyway. So I don't think we are seeing that from him. In a way, it seems like you know, he has somewhat conducted himself with some restraint but of obviously you know the extent to which you could accept that level of restraint really is became subjective depending on where you are from and, and how you look at it and looking at the, the southeast asian kind of interactions within the summits you know what kind of signals did you take from the discussions and the kind of interactions between xi and southeast asian leaders at these various summits I think, you know, it does highlight, you know, the symbiotic relationship between China and Southeast Asia. I think it goes without saying that there is a much at stake, economically especially. And given that geographically, China is the neighbor that you could never wish away. For Southeast Asian uh, countries, it has very often been more of living with that giant up north. And if you want to live the giant up north, then for that peaceful coexistence, it might not be enough and you will try to maximize as much benefit from the interaction as possible. So I think that is, you know, the sort of backdrop with which we understand the very recent Southeast Asian countries do feel a sense of trepidation towards China, while on one hand, uh, Xi's appearance in the summit seemed to highlight that China might potentially walk back on the dynamic zero policy and start to reopen the borders. And of course, that will mean every positive things for Southeast Asian economies, which themselves were suffering from inflation, from the post-COVID impact, as well as from the Russian-Ukraine war. So with China, these sort of signals are very much welcome. But at the same time, given that it happened uh, not long after the 20th Party Congress, and having seen Xi Jinping secure his third term in power, I think it also does you know, create a sense of uncertainty in Southeast Asia regarding Xi's next move, especially when it comes to foreign policy issues like Taiwan, South China Sea, and whatnot. So, and of course, the most important thing that you know, seems to occupy the minds in Southeast Asia has very often been the relationship between China and the US. In that sense, it seems to be a good opportunity for Southeast Asian leaders to re-engage Xi Jinping face-to-face and sort of rekindle the, the old times before pandemic. But at the same time, if you compare the interactions also with the Southeast Asian interactions with the other powers, such as the case of the ASEAN-US summit and the ASEAN-India summit or the ASEAN-Australia summit, I think it's clear that Southeast Asian countries are not going to just put all their eggs into the Chinese basket. And clearly, you know, it, it works all the time that, you know, Southeast Asian countries will try to hatch. I mean, by using the word hatch, it's not to oversimplify um, the very complex dynamics uh, behind that, but merely to, to say that, you know, Southeast Asian countries have never really put all their bets uh, in one particular power and they will try to maximize their benefits from as many of them as possible uh, while staying out of their crosshairs and to exercise as much autonomy and agency as possible. Yeah, you, you see that hedging going on more in this part of the world than almost anywhere else in the world. And countries like Vietnam and the Philippines are masters of it. And Singapore, where you are as well, where they will have discussions with the Chinese and say, you 
are my best friends. You are so important to me. And then the next day, turn around to the Americans and be like, you are my best friend. You are so important to me. It's really quite remarkable to watch. And in fact, I neglected to mention that it's even before the summits were taking place last week, the week before that, Xi Jinping embarked on a flurry of diplomacy where the first foreign dignitary that he met after the 20th Party Congress was the general secretary of the Vietnamese Communist Party. That's a very important relationship. And he met the general secretary here of Vietnam in his capacity as the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think there was a lot of symbolism there. Vietnam is a very important partner for the Chinese, but it's also a country that has a very complex, tense relationship with China. So again, the complexities are on full display in the Sino-Vietnamese relationship. He also met with the Pakistani prime minister. He met with the Tanzanian president. And then finally capped the week off with the German Chancellor Schultz. So it's been a very busy past few weeks. Mm. Colin, you talked about the United States. Let's talk about what happened at the U.S.-ASEAN summit Mm. in Phnom Penh. Mm. The United States seems to think that it's in contention to rival the Chinese, and it's stepping up its spending. So back in May, the United States had this U.S.-ASEAN Leaders Summit, Mm -hmm. which can only best be described as a pathetic, laughable (laughs) joke. And what I say by that is because they unveiled a $150 million five-year financial aid package for infrastructure, security, and green. Now, remember, ASEAN is a 10-nation block of countries. So when we talk about $150 million over five years spread across 10 countries, you kind of see, well, you're not really in the game when the Chinese are building $6 billion railroads in Laos and $9 billion railroads in Indonesia and spending huge on infrastructure and development in ASEAN. Well, the United States came back this time and said, okay, message heard, we got it. And they pulled out their checkbook and this time they wrote a check for $860 million, which puts the contributions this year in excess of $1 billion from the U.S., to ASEAN. That's a lot of money. Now we're getting into the game. What did you think of the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum? I think that's what IPEF framework. framework. There we go. I can't keep track with all the American acronyms. I mean, but anyway, Mm. this IPEF thing, again, I'm not a huge fan of it because it does not provide any market access into the United States. I'm not entirely sure what it does. I think most Southeast Asian leaders are looking at this and going, "Uh, okay, I mean, you know, if there's money coming, we'll kind of play along, but they don't seem to be that enthusiastic about it. What was your take from the IPEF updates and the U.S. engagement in Southeast Asia. You know, this uh, IPF uh, issue was interesting because just uh, two weeks ago, myself and my colleagues in RSIS made a sort of a networking and study trip to Washington, D.C. and visited a host of think tanks, uh, you know, whether you're talking about those uh, that are slanted towards the, the Democrats or slanted towards the Republicans, I think we got a pretty good spread of uh, sentiments around and I think what converges onto was the fact that, you know, IPEF, as you rightly pointed out, is not going to talk about free trade in any sense. It doesn't, you know, mark the return of the US to CPTPP either. IPEF. And that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, just for those following. And I'm trying to keep track of all our (laughs) acronyms here. Trans-Pacific Partnership. Go ahead. Yeah, and they put CP in front with Japan leading it because, you know, practically they need to sort of, you know, give a rebranding of that thing. That's right. It's TPP 2.0. 
Yeah, so that is still TPP uh, without the US. And I think even as we are speaking of this, I believe you know a number of countries, despite the signals coming out of Washington DC, they are still harboring the slimmest hope that one day the US will decide to return to the pact or even come with something equivalent to that. You know, the thing about Southeast Asian countries, and I think you rightly pointed out the observation about the reception towards IPF is, you know, there is no market access, but nonetheless, it is still something that is of significance, even if it is more symbolic than anything else. Why I say that? Because for a long time, the Southeast Asian countries are quite cognizant of the fact that the US always seem to be more preoccupied in the defense and security realm of engagements with the region. And when it comes to the economic realm, unfortunately, that has very often appeared to be an afterthought of the administrations. So with the IPEF, it appeared that there is a sort of a rethinking signal from the side of Washington DC that, you know, there is a need to reinvigorate economic engagement, albeit in US terms, because you know there is no free market access. I do remember that when these IPF started to float around uh, in the reporting, there was some initial hope among Southeast Asian countries that it might potentially be a TPP in disguise or some sort. Um, and then it might be some free trade. And then when more details surface, and then obviously the disappointment sets in, but I don't think it sort of killed the, the, the total you know, uh, willingness to engage for the very reason that you know, it is still better than nothing, right? If you know, Southeast Asian countries now see that the US is coming up with somewhat concrete idea of how to re-engage the region economically, then it actually is better on their part to support it in some way. And then while you support it, you can wait and see anyway because it is not as if Southeast Asian countries rely only on IPF you know for that because uh, there is this RCEP which is the regional cooperation what is that comprehensive yeah, economic partnership wasn't that it regional comprehensive yeah. economic we're all getting our acronyms straight here mm. and that's the Chinese kind of semi-alternative mm. sort of alternative to the CPTPP right yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Even if that's a case, right? While RCEP, while it was being signed, and that was without India, that was without the US, and that obviously India and US absence in RCEP also disappointed <laughs> a number of Southeast Asian countries. But you know, that being said, it was interesting to see that China, even though leading on RCEP, is also evincing very, very clear interest to join CPTPP, and I think is trying to go around and lobby for support uh, all around. And in fact, you know, the, the idea of looking at you know, Xi Jinping and China in general trying to sort of reach out to suppose unfriendly partners around the region like Australia, I think it's quite clear that you know, there is some inkling to China's uh, intention to join some of these uh, key frameworks. And the thing is, you can look at it from two dimensions. One is that China just wants to be in the game of everything uh, that is economic. It doesn't want to lose out in anything. But on the other hand, you could see as a way to undercut US influence uh, in, in that sense. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting that while RCEP is in operation uh, for most, but it is clear that even for some Southeast Asian countries, RCEP has yet to be ratified. I mean, in the case of Indonesia, uh, not Indonesia, in the case of Philippines, is yet to be ratified as such. 
So, I mean, it, it also does run into problems um, domestically. It's not to say that all multilateral free trade agreements or something, you know, equivalent to that will always get a leeway, but it's not true. There's always domestic issues. And so countries in the region do also want to hedge. And obviously the Philippines is very keen on other frameworks as well uh, in, in that respect. So yeah, I think, you know, basically that very likely sums up, you know, what we see as Southeast Asia's perception as a response to IPF. I think, it, as I mentioned, it's a wait and see uh, while supporting it, at least symbolically uh, for that. You mentioned the Philippines and the new president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., said that he would discuss, you know, kind of these territorial disputes with China um, over the South China Sea during these summits. And then, you know, he's also coming up for a visit to Beijing in January. So I was wondering, you know, just in relation to the Philippines, but also in relation to some of the other contestants in that particular fight, what kind of indications did you get from these summits about where we are? in relation to the South China Sea at the moment? This is a very good question, Kubus. Thanks so much for the question. Now, I look at the South China Sea uh, in particular. Uh, the, the issue here is that the existing current framework that is in operation is the declaration of conduct of parties in the South China Sea, or what you call DOC, signed in November 2002. So we, we sort of celebrated its uh, 20th anniversary <laughs> recently. And the current framework that is being negotiated right now is the Code of Conduct, uh, which is supposed to be uh, building on the DOC and it should be promulgated in the coming years, supposedly. <laughs> but, you know, appears from Marcos' own statements uh, given to the summits that, you know, there's practically no progress for the COC. And of course, uh, obviously, Southeast Asian countries and China in particular wanted the COC to proceed and to be promulgated in as early as possible. I do question two things. One is the level of seriousness they have in pushing for an early promulgation of the Code of Conduct. So that's one. Second is that, you know, whether they are serious or not, I'm not too sure, you know, that whether they know how to go about doing that <laughs> because there are many of these pre-COVID problems concerning the code of conduct that hasn't been resolved even till this day. And given that the negotiations have sort of bogged down during COVID times, given that they don't really feel comfortable discussing about that virtually, and very often it is the sort of bilaterals and the intra-ASEAN get-together or the or huddle before the actual negotiation that really matters amongst them. So during the COVID period, radically nothing much has been done. And that being said, I wouldn't be wrong, I believe, to say that some Southeast Asian countries uh, really found that as a good respite because you know they know the problems of the COC and the COVID-19, you know, provided a very convenient excuse to say, oh no, sorry, we are very busy with the COVID and, you know, we, we have to deal with those <laughs> problems. So we have no time for the COC. So we can talk about that later. You know, it's like putting it on the back burner simply because you don't want to discuss it, not because, you know, you are really enthusiastic about anything. So th this is the, the state of affairs. And obviously for China, it is uh, somewhat unsettling because if you could trace its behavior towards the COC process, before the 2016 arbitral award being issued on the South China Sea, China was dragging its feet on the COC. After the arbitral award was being released, you saw a reinvigorated effort of China trying to get it all restarted. 
And the reason is only because China clearly wanted to use the COC as a way to counter the arbitral award. In other words, if you could put it in layman's term, is that when you have the COC, why do you need to talk about the arbitral award at all, right? Because the COC means that we can resolve the issues on our own amongst we Asian countries. So we don't need extra regional meddling uh, from the US and whatnot. So you guys just stay out and leave it to us to talk about it. So this is the reason why China, I believe, is so keen to push for an early promulgation of the COC. But Southeast Asian countries are not necessarily playing along with that because they believe that during COVID period and given the, the state of their domestic problems, they believe that you know they might be put at a disadvantage when it comes to the negotiation. So they will rather just put a hold on it. Now, with Xi Jinping coming back on board and reaching out, even with that, I still fail to see how you know ASEAN countries and China will get restarted quick time on the COC. It's going to take still some time. Some of these problems that we know about regarding the negotiations uh, were there for a long time. And even after you know Xi Jinping came back with the post-COVID comeback on, on, on you know, regional diplomacy, this Trump offensive is not likely to reinvigorate the process in a significant way either. So in a way, what I'm trying to say is that the COC problems, the South China Sea problems writ large, is a structural one. What I believe will be a game changer for China to really you know, get the support of the, the general Southeast Asian um, you know, parties to be on board. The, the negotiation is if China is willing to demonstrate that it is rolling back on its militarization of the South China Sea and perhaps, you know, for, for goodwill, stop, you know, exercising coercion against some of its neighbors in the South China Sea, like the case of Vietnam. But that's not happening though, right? We have, in fact, we got brand new satellite pictures, I think a week or two ago, which showed really how much progress the Chinese have made in, in the islands in the South China Sea or the East Vietnam Sea, as they say here in, in Vietnam. But these are full-fledged military bases now. I mean, I don't think Southeast Asian countries will expect China to vacate those islands or give them up anyway. It is like, you know, the fact has been sort of, you know, recreated on the ground anyway, uh, short of any potential disasters or whatnot. I, I do actually maintain a study on the South China Sea outpost, and I could tell you more later about the geomorphological problems of those artificial islands and all that. But, you know, the problem here is that those islands are there. The, the there is no way Southeast Asian countries could turn the clock back to before the arbitral proceedings, which is you know before and even before you know the Scarborough Show incident in uh, April 2012. So you know in a way they live with that. But probably what they would expect is even if China maintained those outposts, at the very least you know you could expect less muscular diplomacy from China in the area. But obviously that's not really happening. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. But we started our conversation looking at the really amazing economic integration in Asia that's taking place either through CPTPP or through RCEP or through the, any number of free trade agreements. Vietnam and Japan have a free trade agreement. And this is really a dynamic region for global trade. So I think somewhere around 60% of global trade passes through here. This is increasingly the center of global wealth is in Asia. So that's a very encouraging, uh, exciting story. At the same time, this is also one of the most fractious regions when it comes to security. 
And so let me just start from north and head to south, okay? So we have nuclear testing going on with North Korea. We have Japan now actively considering moving beyond its self-defense orientation to move beyond the U.S. reliance as well. So potentially a more offensive-based Japanese military. Obviously, China has expanded enormously. We've got the Taiwan Strait issues, territorial disputes with Vietnam. And then we've got, let's not forget, 50,000 soldiers and heavy artillery facing each other in the line of actual control between India and China high up in the Himalayas. And that, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is only about an eighth of of the security problems that we've got in this region. It is terrifying to see how much military hardware is floating in the South China Sea today, from Australia, Canada, Germany, France, the United States, China, Japan, I mean, all of it within 100 or 200 square kilometers of one another. On top of all of that, and this is where you come in in your research, Southeast Asia has been on a buying spree for military hardware and military equipment. There is not quite an arms race, but certainly a beefing up of both maritime security and terrestrial security. Help us understand the trends. How do these two trends coexist where you have economic integration at the same time as a massive military buildup? Well, this is a very interesting question. And obviously, we often ask, you know, what comes first, guns or butter? But in Southeast Asia, the prerequisite of, you know, having a strong economy or what you be tend to talk about economic resilience in Southeast Asia or generally national resilience is a very comprehensive one. And that doesn't uh, just simply uh, confine to one or two countries in Southeast Asia, but I think there is a general observation to be made that in Southeast Asia, comprehensive security has very much been in play for decades, in fact, uh, whether you talk about the Cold War era or you talk about the post-Cold War era till now. And it means that while economically you need to be strong, at the same time, militarily, you need to have some modest capability to speak of as well. We're not looking at Southeast Asian countries exactly arming themselves to the teeth for reasons that, you know, while of course, you know, it it tends to grab the headlines when these and that Southeast Asian countries bought some new sexy toys like, you know, multi-road jet fighters, like the case of Indonesia with the Rafales from France, or you talk about Thailand buying submarines from China and, and whatnot. I mean, that being said, we are talking about individual capabilities. But if you look at the general, broader force structures of Southeast Asian militaries, you do see gaps, and those gaps are considerable. Uh, we're looking at, you know, not just the individual capabilities themselves that might be powerful in their own right, but when you set them in the context of a force structure, they may not exactly be well equipped to handle any high intensity conflict going forward. That's one. Second is you question whether they do really have a developed set of strategies as well as concept of operations to bring all these diverse systems and capabilities together. That's second. Third is in terms of the training, in terms of the morale of the personnel and whether they have enough personnel at all to assimilate all these systems and capabilities is another big question altogether. And then on top of that, it appears that on the day-to-day basis, Southeast Asian militaries appear to be largely preoccupied with 
dealing with constabulary issues. Like for example, navies in Southeast Asia, well, there are coast guards that exist, of course, but navies in Southeast Asia do continue to be involved in, say, counter illegal fishing uh, operations, you know, counter smuggling operations and whatnot. Usually when you get engaged in this sort of operations, it takes time and resources and manpower away from other types of training activities and other forms of maintenance activities. And this is quite obvious during the time of the COVID-19 when practically, you know, the, the forces were all put in the field just to maintain border security, right? So this is to allow, allow me to put a nuance to what you were talking about because very often we think about the arms build up in Southeast Asia from that perspective, but a security dilemma these days is not exactly in operation. I would say that might be the case in the 1990s and the early 2000s when there are a host of bilateral maritime and land border disputes among Southeast Asian countries that were not resolved. But over the past 10 years or more, we have seen quite good progress on that front where Southeast Asian countries they either you know, brought their cases to international bodies like ICJ or they politically resolve it by signing on to settlement uh, agreements for that. So when we saw this sort of you know, arms build up, I don't think that is largely meant to be in response to a classical threat perception amongst each other. But I believe it has a lot more to do with a general sense of uncertainty about the environment around. And you have already raised these issues earlier, you know, the Korean Peninsula problems, East China Sea, the Japan's case, China itself, uh, South China Sea, and even, you know, further afield in the Indian Ocean with the Indian Chinese border uh, problems. So all these frame the minds of um, the Southeast Asian military planners to gain as much insurance as possible. However, for, and that's my last observation to your question, is that, you know, that being said, Again, the one thing that has never really changed in Southeast Asia is if you need to have those capabilities, you need to have funding. And the issue here is with the post-COVID era, it was already quite difficult. And given the existing you know, problems from the Russia-Ukraine war, the economic problems faced by Southeast Asian countries were even more acute to be felt. We're talking about accumulated debts we are talking about reduced revenues. We are talking about governments having to spend more money in terms of fuel subsidies and to look into you know, sprucing up their food security. So all these take away resources. And on top of that, the post-COVID investments in health infrastructure is considerable. So therefore, it does put a strain on how much they could buy militarily, which thereby also explains why the Philippines decided that while they do love submarines, they have to put it on the hold for now. So it's not priority. And so they have to grudgingly agree that, you know, they have to wait for another five years or so before they could generate the revenues and, and the money to buy them. So that is, you know, generally what I will see as more nuanced take of that build up in Southeast Asia. So this is just a, a very basic question, actually. You've mentioned the military buildup and the capability of Southeast Asian countries. You know, in, in general, I think outside observers have noted that China has been rapidly building up its military. But I was wondering, what is China's actual current capability in the South China Sea? Like where, you know, we, we know that China's been beefing up its navy, for example, but like how much has it been beefed up? And like, how, how big is it now? This is a good question. I'll be as brief as possible now. The build-up of the artificial island outposts helped to change the game somewhat. 
It helps to change the game in a way it's not because the Chinese started to base aircraft and ships over there. Uh, there are clear reasons, as I highlighted earlier, why the Chinese would not put too many troops on those outposts and they will not put permanent detachments of aircraft or ships in that area for too long. They will rotate them for sure, but they will not permanently deploy them. However, the reasons why these outposts were important is because they help to extend the projection range for Chinese capabilities so that they could maintain station for longer times in the South China Sea without having to necessarily go back to their home bases along the mainland coast of China or even to Hainan. So this is where it is important. A good example would be back in late 2019, and I believe Eric, you remember that, is when Vietnam and China engaged in the standoff over Haiyang Tijil number 8, uh, that seismic survey ship. The ship didn't go back to its home port back in uh, Guangzhou. It actually went to Fiery Cross. It went to Fiery Cross, it did its replenishment, and the crew got some rest. And then a few days later, it went back into the EEZ again and to continue the standoff with Vietnam. So this is how we could see those islands become so useful because practically it allowed China good staying power. So that is one. From that, it also means that the existing buildup of the Chinese military, whether you talk about the PLA as well as the, by extension, the Coast Guard, we are seeing unprecedented amount of capacity they could put in the field that allows them persistent presence. And that persistent presence is never seen before in the South China Sea. Now the Chinese were so confident and my Chinese interlocutors were telling me it's actually okay if you know foreign naval vessels like the US Navy, they will sail around the Spratly Islands. They just don't have to enter into the 12 nautical miles of our features. They are free to go around anyway because we could keep track of them. So that is how confident they are that you know they now they are able to keep track of them. So they are not that worried, right? So that is the other aspect. However, I will still also caution against grossly overestimating what the Chinese military could accomplish because while the hardware accomplishments were very impressive in terms of number of ships and all that they commissioned over the past few years, but in terms of other areas, they are still trying to grapple with that. For example, they are trying to grapple with modernized training syllabus. That is one. Second is they are still trying to sort out the command and control relationship because they are still working on the old Cold War era Soviet style uh, command and control model when there's a dual command. There is a tactical commander and there's a political commander, right? So they have to work out around that to ensure that their troops will have some level of flexibility. And so that is a second. And the third is in terms of integrating the various services together, combined arms uh, tactics and, and, and concepts and you know, integrated warfare or joint warfare is still something that is still work in progress uh, for the Chinese military. So they're still trying to grapple with all that. Uh, it will take time, but I believe uh, given you know, the existing political will and the capabilities they have on hand, they will reach there for sure. But it's a matter of time, in fact. But for now, it will be good to just keep a watch on what they are doing. And that's a very good point to remember that the last time the People's Liberation Army was in a conflict was 1979 in the border war between Vietnam and China. So they have not been tested in combat in 30 years or even longer. So 40 years now, my goodness. So that is something to think about. And as you pointed out, they have a lot of beautiful, shiny hardware, but the command and control 
may not be as sophisticated. Colin Coe is a research fellow at the Institute of Defense and Strategic Studies, which is part of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Colin, thank you so much for giving us a masterclass in contemporary ASEAN and Asian politics. It is making our heads spin with everything that you've shared with us today. You are quite active on Twitter. And if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, where can they find you? My Twitter account is Colin SL Co, uh, double L <laughs> in there. Or you could simply just uh, Google me, you will find my RSIS uh, web, web page where you could uh, have a list of the publications. It's not always updated on a daily basis, but you will find some of my uh, keywords out there. And I very much look forward to engaging you, Eric and Cobus, and you know our audience. If there is anything that I could help, and if there's anything you want to discuss offline, please feel free to approach me and look forward to having a discussion with you. Well, we're definitely going to take you up on that. And I'm going to put a link to Colin's Twitter handle and his SRS link below in the show notes so you guys can access that. Once again, Colin, thank you so much for your time. It was great to speak with you. Thank you, Eric, for having me here. Thank you so much. Kobus, you can see from the conversation with Colin just how intense the politics are in this part of the world. And I think, again, for our audience maybe who's new to Southeast Asia and to Asian politics, the complexity of the security and the economics and the geopolitics all clashing in together at the same time makes it both incredibly fascinating for foreign policy nerds like us, but at the same time, really difficult to untangle. So you can look at the economic track and see, wow, this is fantastic. Then you can look at the security track and go, Ooh, gosh, that's a little scary. And then the geopolitics add this variable into it that is so dynamic. That's why for me, being in this part of the world, I just love it because it is a puzzle that you can never figure out. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it's also so fascinating to see the interplay between closeness and distance in all of these relationships where they are both like so kind of cheek by jowl, you know, kind of just pressed together, you know, next to China. But at the same time, China is also this kind of distant figure in their calculations. And then the way that all of these other external kind of actors, you know, end up kind of just complicating the situation so much more, particularly, of course, the United States, but also also Australia and other other kind of regional actors this is really fascinating. I want to share a story with you, and I haven't had a chance to share this story previously on our other show because it's been about Africa. But in my previous life here in Vietnam, I used to run the largest business news TV channel, channel called uh, FBNC, Financial Business News Channel. So think of it as like a Vietnamese version of Bloomberg or CNBC. And I ran that network for five years. And in that position, I had the opportunity to meet some very high-ranking officials within the Vietnamese foreign ministry. It was just really an amazing opportunity. And I had lunches with this one particular foreign ministry official, and he and I would have this kind of standing lunch every four or five months just to touch base. And we, we grew to really like each other, and he was a little bit older than me. And we had lunch at one point when John Kerry, who was then Secretary of State, came back to Vietnam for the first time since he had served here as a soldier in the Mekong Delta. And it was a very emotional visit, but it also coincided with the turning point where Vietnam and the United States became the largest trading partner uh, for Vietnam. And so I said to this gentleman, I said, isn't it amazing that in our lifetime, we were fighting each other in a brutal war? And here we are as 
best friends, you know, largest trading partner, more exchanges. You know, in fact, they just took off some of the, the limitations to sell military hardware at that time. This is incredible. Don't you think it's great? And he was sitting there smoking, you know, as many of uh, senior officials do here and drinking. And he said, Mr. Eric, don't get too excited. I said, why? This is amazing. He said, I'll tell you the way we think about it in Hanoi. And he said, you know, in Hanoi, what we think about, he said, you know, the United States, it's a little bit like a mistress. Mistresses, you can have fun with. All the things you can't do at home. Mistresses are fun, right? I said, well, okay, I'll take your word for it. But he said, Mr. Eric, mistresses come and mistresses go. And then he pointed up, which I think was north for him. And he said, but the wife... She's always there. <laughs> okay? And that was the wife was China. So as much as we like to think in the United States that, you know, Southeast Asia's in play. <laughs> we hear this all the time. And you even hear in some right-wing media, like, Vietnam is going to switch <laughs> over to the American side and turn on China. And you're just like, delusion. Because at the end of the day, as Colin pointed out, everything is oriented around China. Because geography is just a fact of life, okay? And that is the wife. <laughs> the wife is always going to be there. And that's the reality. That, I think, is the wider reality of East Asia as well. You know, kind of, it's a very similar kind of, like, situation, you know, that, that kind of, like, we're locked in here, we're going to be here forever, kind of, like, vibe is very strong in, in between Japan and China, for example, as well. Yeah, I mean, the United States can come and the United States can go. And what's interesting here in Vietnam today is that the United States is not the mistress today. It's Japan. Japan is the largest financer of infrastructure. Japan has the free trade agreement. There's all this exciting stuff going on with Japan. And maybe tomorrow it's going to be Korea. So, again, I think it's very interesting to think about what that Vietnamese foreign ministry official was telling me, how those relationships are quite fluid. The relationship with China is not. And yet Vietnam has, again, a very complex relationship with China because this was a country that for a thousand years – a thousand years was occupied as part of the tributary system. And so it is, and always remember when we had our conversation with Ambassador Huang Ping and he said, China's never invaded another country. And I said, the people of Vietnam would beg to differ with you. Boy, oh boy, <laughs> beg to differ with you. But this has been an amazing past couple of weeks just to watch the speed of diplomacy. And I have to say that watching Xi Jinping for the past two weeks, I don't get why someone like Chancellor Schultz from Germany would come to China following the Pakistani and the Tanzanian president and prime minister. Like, you know, to me, it made him look small. And the way that she treated the chancellor was just crappy. Did you read about this? Where he, he didn't say his name and he just said, hey, you know, and barely acknowledged him. And I was just like, what? And then take that into the context of when he was in Bali, and was greeting everybody, he made every visiting dignitary, visiting president or prime minister, let me correct that. See, I even got sucked into the language. Nobody was visiting because they were all visiting. He made everybody he was meeting with walk up to him as if he was hosting them. And you had this image of Joe Biden going into a small jog to run up to she, as if she was the host and Biden was the visitor. They weren't. Both were visitors because they were in a neutral third-party country. And then you had the Justin Trudeau. 
And I just don't get the sense that Western leaders understand what they're up against with Xi Jinping. I mean, like, I think they got to be tougher. And I think they got to demand respect from him. I mean, I was just kind of put off of like, why would Schultz not insist that like, I'm coming to Beijing and I'm going to get the week to myself. I'm not going to follow on Tanzania and Pakistan and the Vietnamese general secretary of the Communist Party. You got to see me or in my hundred member delegation of the German business community. Or guess what? I'm not coming. Yeah, kind of it would be fascinating to hear also from, you know, from a German political insider and like how that decision was made, the timing was decided and then how the the fallout was handled, you know. But yeah, it's all it's all very interesting and, and quite funny for me. Man, she won the optics war. I mean, she absolutely won the optics war. Watching all of these leaders walk up to him, Ramaphosa, same way. I was just like, why not have the advanced team say either they walk together or they just kind of off camera, you know, stand there. And then all of a sudden the pictures start taking when they're there. But making these leaders walk up to him, I think, again, great move by the Chinese advanced teams and the protocol team. Great. They totally got it. But why would the American president agree to this and say, we're in a third country. You're not the host. We're going to walk together and we're going to assert ourselves. I'm not saying this to be kind of provocative. I just, I don't think it looks good. And the way he brushed aside Trudeau at the end was just like, he was definitely in command. There's no doubt. He was definitely in command. And so it was a fascinating week. Absolutely fascinating week. So, you know, yeah, I don't even know where to kind of leave it because my head is spinning both from what Colin was saying and also trying to think about all that we've been writing about over the past two weeks. It was exciting for us to finally focus on Southeast Asia. So that was, this is a little bit of thrill. I've gotten some requests, Kobus, for us to do more in Southeast Asia. So we're trying to find folks in Indonesia and also in Cambodia, because those are two very interesting relationships that those countries have with China. And then we're going to take Colin up on his offer to go and have him come back and talk about Singapore in particular. And then coming up in a few weeks, just a heads up, everybody, I'm in the process of talking to some folks in Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka is a fascinating case right now in terms of China related to debt, to military, to the China-India-Sri Lanka nexus, all of that. So we've got some fantastic shows coming up on the China Global South podcast. If these are issues that you find fascinating as much as we do and you want to read all of the analysis from people like Colin, Kobus, myself, and the entire China Global South team every single day put out a daily brief that goes out at 6 a.m. Washington time, and it is just chock full of everything that the Chinese are doing in ASEAN, in Africa, in the Americas, in the Middle East, Central Asia, and South Asia. We cover all of that, and the fact is, nobody else, and I'm not exaggerating here, none of the other China watchers, the other newsletters, the other kind of podcasts do this every single day the way we do. So if this is an area of interest, and it should be, we would love for you to try out the China Global South uh, subscriptions. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe, and you'll find all of the information there. And we have special discounts for students and teachers. Let's leave the conversation there. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the China Global South podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com 
where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.